This podcast is sponsored by the Davenant Institute and Davenant Hall, reimagining theological education. Visit davenanthall.com. The Davenant Institute seeks to retrieve the riches of classical Protestantism to renew and build up the contemporary church. Key to this mission is their educational arm, Davenant Hall. In an age where much theological education both overlooks the riches of church history and keeps students in debt, Davenant Hall is reimagining theological education. Davenant Hall takes full advantage of digital technology to make high-quality theological education affordable via online courses. Students can simply audit a single class or enroll in a degree program, including subject-specific certificates, PhD supervision, and the flagship MLIT program, which includes pastoral tracks for Baptist, Anglican, and Reformed or Presbyterian ministry. Enroll in classes at any time during the academic year. Knowing that in-person fellowship is key to Christian formation, Davenant hosts regular residentials at their study center in the beautiful Blue Ridge Mountains of South Carolina. Registration for spring term 2024 classes running April to June is now open. Register by March 27th. Fees start at just $225 for a 10-week class with a two-hour Zoom class from expert professors each week. Spring term classes include Male and Female in Modernity with Alistair Roberts, The Reformation and the Modern World with Michael Lynch, Philosophy as a Way of Life with Joseph Minnick and more. Visit DavenantHall.com to find out more. That's DavenantHall.com. at the conceptual level, um, abortion allows an entire culture, an economic culture, a political culture, um, an educational culture, all to be built as if female bodies are somehow defective forms of male bodies. And that for women to be equal to men, they have to be able to compete and work and learn and engage in sexual activity the way that men can which is then conceptualized as the way that like unvirtuous men can. Hello and welcome to Theology on the Go. I'm Jonathan Master, joined as always by my friend and co-host, James Dolezal. James, how are you today? Jonathan, I'm well and uh, looking forward to our conversation on a topic of really great importance uh, to us in our our culture and our time. Yes, we're honored to have with us today uh, Dr. Ryan T. Anderson. He's the president of the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, D.C., he wrote a a great book, which I'm not sure whether it's available on Amazon or not, When Harry Became Sally, uh, but he's also the author. We're not here to discuss that book today, although we commend it to our listeners, but uh, we're, we're here to discuss another book that he co-authored with Alexandra DeSantis. It's called Tearing Us Apart, How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing. Uh, Ryan, thanks for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be with you. And um, unfortunately, you're correct. The uh, the transgender book, When Harry Became Sally, you can no longer uh, purchase from Amazon. Um, they sold it for the first three years. And then about two years ago, they banned the book. Um, but for whatever reason, they are selling the abortion book. Um, well, I was just going to ask, can we say to our listeners at the end, wherever you buy books, you can get tearing us apart? So far, so good? So far, so good. That 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 is that is true. Um, Barnes & Noble still sells the transgender book. So, you know, if you if you just want to punish Amazon, buy all of your books at Barnes & Noble. But um, oh. it's still, it, it's an interesting question. We, we, we've never really been able to figure out who put Amazon up to it or what motivated Amazon three years after the book came out. Right. To 
you know, deplatform it. Uh, and the timing was just very suspicious. It was right when Trump administration transitioned to Biden administration. It was right when the House of Representatives was set to vote on a radical uh, transgender piece of legislation. And so it, it just strikes me that it wasn't happenstance that, you know, three years later they get rid of it. But yeah, it is, that what it is. it is what it is. It doesn't sound like a coincidence to me either. Did you notice book sales increase or decrease? I mean, there was a bit, no, a little no, bit I, of publicity around that. Yeah. So they, they went up. Um, at the time, because there was, it was, it was, it was almost like you were re-releasing a book. Um, you know, the media was talking about it. Lots of people were hearing about the book for the first time, but I would say once that went away, sales definitely have decreased because if you go to Amazon, I mean, one of the things Amazon is really good at is their algorithms. You know, people who bought the books that you've previously bought also bought these books and they send you these annoying emails. Like, you know, I, you get an email almost like every day from Amazon saying, you know, customers who bought the things that you've bought in the past about. So, so it's both like while you're browsing on their website and in your inbox, they're trying to pitch you with other items and, you know, people who have bought other good books on, you know, the transgender topic, like Abigail Schreier's book or Andrew Walker's book, Abigail Favalli's book, they're no longer being suggested to buy my book, right? And so it it it, it both um, the immediate outcome was a spike in sales. The long term outcome yeah. was more of a diminution in sales. And, and then I know this isn't the the purpose of today's conversation, but I will say that like as a as a scholar and as an author, the thing that I was most frustrated by and still am most frustrated by is the way in which um, Amazon tried to um, sell this to the American public is that, you know, this is a bomb throwing book. This is a red meat book. This right. is a hateful book, right? I mean, they originally said that it violated their hate speech policy. And, you know, as someone who actually tries to be um, rigorous in thought and charitable in expression, you know, that was really frustrating is that, you know, it, it, it was um, it was undermining my credibility um, with a book buying audience. Well, I hope for this book that those that bought Reagan and C. Everett Coop on abortion will be, then get an email saying, by tearing us apart uh, as well. And I know it won't ma- it won't make up for the injustice done, but uh, yeah. Well, I, we do want to talk a little bit about this book. And, and, and this conversation, of course, you mentioned current events with respect to the When Harry Became Sally book. But you know, it's it's been just a little over a year since the Dobbs decision uh, was was came down from the Supreme Court overturning Roe versus Wade. But we know that there there is a tremendous amount still of legal abortion in the United States. And your subtitle is provocative because it is why abortion harms everything and and solves nothing. And I think the solves nothing part might be a little more. Um, uh, 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 people might understand where you're coming from there, but but you actually say it it harms everything. And I want to start with one thing in particular or, or group in particular that people would say normally benefit or normally are, are cited as benefiting from abortion, and that that's women. Uh, I think that the most common argument I hear when I talk to people about abortion, just at a kind of gut level, a popular level, is well. You know, abortion might be wrong. Abortion might be. Uh, it's true that we might be dealing with a with a human being here, but we can't do this to women. And in fact, actually, solidarity with women. It, this is almost the litmus test of yeah. whether you have solidarity with with women. So how does how does abortion ultimately harm women in particular? 
Sure. I mean, and, and the easiest way of answering that question, especially since this is um, a, a theology podcast, is to say that like that's the functional equivalent of like um, uh, of what Bonhoeffer referred to as cheap grace, right? Because we can get solidarity with women, solidarity with women on the cheap, right? My solidarity with women is at the expense of um, their own unborn child. And, and so the second, the first chapter of the book is how abortion harms children, right? That That's the focal harm of abortion. And then the second chapter is precisely on how it harms women. And, and we move through that in a couple of different stages, because one is just at the conceptual level, um, abortion allows an entire culture, an economic culture, a political culture, um, an educational culture, all to be built as if female bodies are somehow defective forms of male bodies. And that for women to be equal to men, they have to be able to compete and work and learn and engage in sexual activity the way that men can, which is then conceptualized as the way that like unvirtuous men can, right? They can engage in consequence-free sex. They can focus on their career to the detriment of family, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, whereas in reality, so, I mean, so this is, you know, abortion harms both women and men because it, it has allowed men to think that they can live uh, as, you know, irresponsible and, you know, uh, vicious men. And it's then enculturated women to think that the only way they can get equality is with sameness, um, where sameness is understood as the non-virtuous way of being male. Um, an alternative way would say that both sexes, male and female, um, should see that um, the asymmetries of reproduction and, and that that phrase, you know, asymmetrical reproduction comes from a colleague of mine at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, Erica Bakiaki. Right? And she says, look, men and women are equal. They're not the same. And there are distinctive asymmetries when it comes to sexual reproduction. Only one of the sexes bears a child in the womb. Right. Only one of the sexes can nurse a child. I mean, despite what all the transgender activists say, leave that um, to the side. Right. Uh, and so as a result, like, what would it look like to take seriously um, solidarity with women that also took seriously the asymmetrical nature of human reproduction and then took seriously um, an economic uh, um, uh, structure, an educational structure, a dating market, and then ultimately marriage that respected these things, right? So, so that's the first way it's harmed women is we have 50 years of solidarity on the cheap. And then we just go through some of the studies that also point out there are physical risks of abortion, um, both surgical abortion and um, chemical abortion. There are uh, um, emotional and psychological um, risks to abortion. Um, so, so, so it's not just at the conceptual level, it's also, also very much on the concrete level. Um, yeah, so I mean, that, that's the best well, thumbnail. Sketch. Well, and it, and it's and it's a compelling case. Um, do, does it as you as you present this case, do people respond as if you're being again an, a, a word that's gotten sort of twisted, uh, paternalistic? Because because the fact of the matter is, many women would would personally disagree with you, even you're, even though you're saying no, it's it's actually bad for you. Um, they're saying no, no, it's this is exactly what I want. No, I mean that, and that's true. And um, I think that's actually a sign of you know this is where you know people get in debates of you know who should be um, uh, if we are going to penalize abortions, who should be penalized, the abortionist or or, or the woman. Um, and look, I think ultimately there are some uh, women who, as a moral matter, you know, clearly know what they're doing and do it anyway, right? I mean, some some women are you know genuinely misguided 
right? But I think, you know, we shouldn't be paternalistic in this sense of saying that, um, you know, women are incapable of actually choosing right. to do something that's grievously unjust and wrong, right? I mean, I, I think for pragmatic reasons, you might want to say that let's actually punish the person who engages in the lethal action. But, but that's ultimately a prudential pragmatic question. Um, but I think ultimately, regardless of who is making the argument, the argument is either true or false, Yes. regardless of the identity, right? So either it is good for women or it isn't good for women that the cost of their equality is sacrificing their own children, right? Um, that's going to be true or false. Um, you know, my co-author is... Um, is a woman who identifies as a woman, if we have to use that stupid phraseology. Um, you know, many of the people who we cite in this chapter, uh, including my colleague, Erica Bakiaki, you know, female legal scholar. So it's not as if, you know, all women think the same thing on this. There's a disagreement um, on these issues. I think the, um, the pro-life women have the better of this disagreement. Uh, and so even people who don't realize um, that abortion is harming them, it actually is harming them uh, because what it's telling them is that that their pathway to happiness requires them um, to sacrifice their fertility and to sacrifice their own offspring, right? This isn't a relationship between strangers, right? If you are a pregnant person, you're a mother, this is your child, um, and you're not fulfilling the um, the the duties that you have to the child. And the same thing is true for men, right? I mean, I, I, I think uh, we shouldn't forget that um, the reason many women think they need an abortion is because their male sexual partner has abandoned them. Uh, a lot of the studies show that the number one um, influence on a woman uh, to have an abortion or not have abortion is the child's father, right? And so both of us, both men and women have duties to children and abortion um, uh, gives us a way of getting out of those duties by killing the child. And that's unjust. Brian, this goes at something that you uh, and Alexander bring out in the book about just the, the the wildly disproportionate number of abortions had by unmarried women as opposed to married. And to come at one of your strategies uh, for addressing this, how does a how does a culture of marriage, um, male female marriage with commitments for life, how does that address this question? And why do we see such vastly different statistics between married and unmarried? Yeah, I mean, so so there are two sets of statistics. I used to, it might take me a minute to get them entirely right, but the statistics are something like 86% of all abortions are to unmarried women and only 14% of abortions are to married women. So that's one way of thinking, you know, who gets an abortion? 86% of the abortions are to unmarried women. The other way of thinking about it is like, what are your odds of being aborted? And I believe children conceived outside of married, outside of marriage, a 40% chance of being aborted, children conceived inside of marriage, only a 4% chance of getting married. And so when you put those two sets of um, data points together, you know, who's getting the abortions and who's being um, aborted. And the reason that they're different, you know, one is, um, you know, 86 and 14, one is four is 40, is just the distribution of how many conceptions take place inside and outside of, of marriage. You know, what are the marriage rates and then what are the conception rates and then who's getting the abortions. What this shows overall though, is that marriage is the best protector of unborn children, right? If you are conceived inside of marriage, you only have a 4% chance of having an abortion. Um, because why? If you get that man to commit to that woman, the two of them committed to each other are much more likely to then be committed to any children that their uh, sexual acts create. 
uh, this is why you know so so many of my previous books, you know, so before the abortion book, before the transgender book, you know, they were they were on marriage, and you know, the, one of the reasons that I was against the legal redefinition of marriage is that I think marriage, by its very nature, is a, a union of husband and wife, um, man and woman, mother and father. Um, that you know, God's created us sexually differentiated as male and female, where we can unite in a one flesh act that is the same act that unites us as spouses is also the same act that can create new life. So I think um, the best pro-life groups to my mind at this moment in time are not just single issue anti-abortion groups, but are much more holistically pushing back on the sexual revolution um, because abortion is kind of the backstop to the sexual revolution in the same way that contraception is kind of um, uh, what facilitates, it's the catalyst of the sexual revolution. And so I think um, we need to be holistic in recovering a more humane understanding of human sexuality, which would also include rebuilding a marriage culture. You say in the book that this also harms medicine. And I think this one might be a little less self-evident to readers because they think, well, if you're a doctor, just opt out and you don't have to do it. How does this harm the practice of medicine or even our understanding of it? Uh, Because these things are actually intertwined. It's not like there's no pressure on doctors uh, when you legalize abortion. Yeah, I mean, there's a variety of things to say here. But I mean, even the way you phrase the question of like, you could always opt out. Right. That makes it seem like abortion is a valid medical procedure in the first place. Mm. Um, but there are two patients here. And if the Hippocratic Oath is still um, a good philosophy of medicine, and I think it is first do no harm, then you can't view the child in the womb as an optional patient. Right. That you can opt out from killing that patient or you could opt in to caring for that patient, which is why the logic of abortion has very quickly merged into the logic of embryo destructive research has merged into what we're now seeing in Canada and increase and in European countries and unfortunately in some of our states um, of a physician assisted suicide right what they're now calling in Canada medical aid in dying which is a euphemism medical aid in dying is actually hospice care like we can aid people in dying a natural death where they will be comforted where they'll have their pain alleviated palliative care hospice care no, no, what we're doing, the euphemism of medical aid in dying is actually the physician assisting in the suicide, which is why originally it was known as physician suicide. And again, the logic of this is I am just a highly technically competent administrator of technique, and I can use my technique either for healing or for killing, right? And so I can use these drugs, these devices, either to heal you or to kill you, unborn baby in the womb. I can use these same techniques, drugs and devices, either to heal you or to kill you, grandma or person who has a severe disability. Um, and, and so, you know, how has it harmed the entire practice of medicine is that it's fundamentally changed, I think, the moral foundations of medicine. Uh, and we quote Leon Cass here is that, you know, medicine is a profession. Professionals profess certain things, right? So uh, professors profess the truth. Um, clergy profess certain commitments about the deity. Um, medical professionals used to profess a commitment to healing and to wholeness. And killing is fundamentally incompatible with that profession. I think it cre- It seems like it's creating also a kind of a distrust in the medical profession as such. Yeah. Uh, maybe if you take it to clergy, if, if you were getting away with teaching heresy without any repercussions, 
um, you begin to be distrustful of the clergy. Maybe there's something analogous to this where uh, I probably I feel it myself a little bit. I don't I don't know what kind of doctor this is um, anymore. I think that's exactly right. And you can see this actually, I mean, I think in the splintering of both Protestant and Catholic communities in the 20th century, right? Lots of people, um, uh, you know, think, think about mainline churches where, you know, people are skeptical of certain pastors or think about, you know, within the Catholic church splintering of the Catholic community after the Second Vatican Council, right? You have the JP2 Catholics and the spirit of Vatican II Catholics. I think lots of people pick up on the dynamic you just described and something similar is true in medicine. Um, and, and I think you really saw this during um, some of the debates over COVID, where people just don't know, can you trust the, the experts, right? And I, I think the emperor has no clothes in the eyes of many when it comes to expertise, um, partly because, I mean, and we show this in the history of abortion, many of the medical experts have actually lied about the science and the medicine vis-a-vis the unborn child in the womb. There's really not a scientific or medical debate. This is not a question as to when the life of a new human being comes into existence. And yet we have people trying to say, well, we don't know the answer to that. And any of us who's ever gotten the 12-week ultrasound, the 20-week ultrasound, there was no doubt in our minds or the technician's mind that that's a baby. And yet when it comes time to file an amicus brief at the Supreme Court, medical science can't say when life begins, right? I mean, so there are lots of things that um, the experts themselves have done to discredit themselves. Ryan, you make a compelling case here that, and even in the answers that you've given, they 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 do come back to uh, questions of, in in a sense, theological questions. You haven't framed them that way, but it's about the value of man, the value of life, uh, the importance of preserving life. These sort of metaphysical questions about about what it means to be a human being. Um, I, we're we're running out of time, and and I wish we could we had t- uh, five times as much time as we do, but but. How do you how do you respond to people who say ultimately when it comes right down to it this is a religious issue you have certain convictions about when life begins you have certain convictions about even even they might even say the 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 value of preserving this sort of life um and you and certainly convictions about marriage which are which are at their root um religious convictions now now the vast majority of our listeners w- will share those we share them as well but but we we know that the broader public doesn't. So how do you respond to that criticism? This is a religious issue, and therefore, uh, maybe they would even say out of bounds for for discussion. But leaving that aside, yep, yep, yeah. I mean, so so th- there are two different ways you can answer that question. One is to say, of course, it's ultimately a religious um, uh, issue because everything is ultimately right. If you're emphasizing the ultimately part, then everything's physics is ultimately religious, right? You're just studying the mechanics of how God created the universe or how the universe that God created works. Um, Mathematics is ultimately religious. Everything would ultimately be religious in in that framework. Um, I mean, and so you could say the same thing about our homicide laws. Ultimately, they're religious. Say the same thing about our racial discrimination laws. Ultimately, they're religious, right? This is why Martin Luther King Jr. would say it's the brotherhood of man under the fatherhood of God. When he's in the Birmingham jail, he'll cite both Augustine and Aquinas to say an unjust law is no law at all. How do we know it's unjust? It's a man-made law that doesn't square with the natural law and the eternal law. Okay, but the reason I mentioned the natural law and the eternal law is that penultimately, right, if ultimately these things are religious, is penultimately, um, the abortion debate is no more religious 
than the slavery debate or the racial discrimination debate or the homicide debate. And so if you don't think it's illicit for the government to say no one can enslave another person, no one can discriminate on the basis of race against another person, no one can um, uh, commit homicide, well, then fetal side, feticide is no more um, a violation of the separation of church and state than homicide laws are. Because, you know, what's at stake here is a conviction that every human being has intrinsic worth and dignity. Their philosophical defenses of that and their theological defenses of that conviction. And then it's a biological question of what is a human being, right? At one point, people claimed if you were the wrong color skin, you were subhuman. They were wrong. And we could give both a biological and a theological reason why they were wrong. Same thing is true for the child in the womb. Um, so anyway, so I think there are both biological, philosophical, and theological arguments we could give on the abortion debate. It's no more and no less religious than many of the other contentious uh, moral arguments that we have had. Ultimately, it is religious because I think ultimately everything is, but that doesn't mean penultimately um, we can't appeal um, to you know what Rawls would refer to as public reasons, what I would just refer to as reason. I mean, the law written on the heart, natural law, um, uh, there's no conflict between faith and reason if you're doing both well, right? Good theology and good philosophy and good science won't conflict. Bad theology will conflict. Bad science will conflict. Bad philosophy will conflict. But if you do all of the various disciplines well, they're all different methodologies, different approaches, different um, uh, 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 disciplines of discovering one singular truth. And the truth doesn't conflict. Ryan, thank you for your time today. We really appreciate it. Uh, we would commend this book to our listeners, Tearing Us Apart, How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing. So thanks for your time today. Yeah, thank you. Happy to be with you. All right. Yeah, I, so, I love the, uh, you're going to go off. We're going to commend the book as soon as you're gone. I love okay. the, I love the uh, Martin Luther King Jr. with a nod to Aquinas um, and ex excellent on on natural law and eternal law, I think probably some of our listeners are they're from that Protestant world yep. that is suspicious of natural law and they they need to they need to reconcile with it. And uh, I think you presented that winsomely. So awesome. that was great. Cool. Thank and I, I know we went longer, so I hope it's no, 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 no it's no. okay. It was we're, all good. All good. A little, and we're a actually flex there. When we do our wrap up, we're actually gonna James and I were talking before about, we, I think we may just read in its entirety the last paragraph in your afterward, which deals with the natural law and evangelization. Awesome. It's just really, really well done. So awesome. thank, thank you. you guys. Yeah. I appreciate right. it. May, it. May it remain on Amazon. Yes. <laughs> yes. Amen. All right. All Thanks, right, Ryan. Take care. Thanks, Lord bless Ryan. you. Thanks. Thanks. Well, James, this is a, th this was one of those conversations that uh, we could have kept going with it. I, and I sort of alluded to that in the middle. I wish we had had a, a number of episodes because uh, Ryan Anderson is a tremendously articulate uh, speaker and, and he's a really good writer as well. Um, but uh, and it's an important issue and it's an issue that touches on so many other things. I mean, we didn't even go into uh, much detail on this, but each of the chapters of this book De uh, is is dealing with a different aspect of life and of society that is affected and 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 you know uh, 
harmed by by abortion. So he talks about the law and he talks about medicine and he talks about obviously children and and women and and uh, equality and choice and the democratic process and the popular culture and media. And so it's a it's a compelling book and and one that really our listeners would do well to to pick up for themselves. This is a book on public morality and how to convince people who are committed to public immorality to change their minds. Uh, and it's not, this is, this is a book that if you're a pro-lifer, you're going to, you're going to agree with it, but you're also going to be helped to articulate your position uh, to friends and coworkers and neighbors who aren't pro-lifers um, because it's one thing, and he's right. It's one thing to uh, get good policy, the overturning of Roe v. Wade is good uh, morally and constitutionally, but it's not the same thing as changing minds. Uh, there, there needs to be argument. And I think they do a great job kind of canvassing a whole array of approaches to this question. But in particular, um, where they bring it in the end, the, the the ultimate paragraph in the book and the afterward is maybe worth attention as we come to a close. So do you mind if I read a bit of it? Yeah, go ahead and read it. I think this is a good way for us to end. They write, we can discover these truths through reason because they're part of the natural moral law, but to embrace them and live them out, especially at the civilizational level, requires grace and thus conversion and thus evangelization. While we need not appeal to religion in order to make the true and convincing argument that abortion has harmed everything, the most fundamental case against abortion is a case for the dignity of human life, which rests in the truth that each of us is created in the image and likeness of God and created to find our deepest fulfillment in the kingdom of heaven. That kingdom begins here and now in the sacrifices we make for our families, friends, and neighbors in all of our work to build a culture of life. Uh, and, yeah. and I think that really it, it's he's not putting uh, the arguments through the book in competition with the religious agenda, but saying uh, that they subserve that agenda. Yeah, no, that that's well put. We'll, we'll leave. I, I think both of us are, are sort of chomping at the bit here to, to say more and, and there's more to be said, but we'll leave it there. We'll give them the last word as 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 they should. Uh, we're grateful, as always, for those of you who are listening. Uh, if you want a, a, an opportunity to win a copy of this book, we do have a couple of them. You can go to placefortruth.org or theologyonthego.org. And uh, it's again, it's called Tearing Us Apart, How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing. Uh, if you think you know someone who would be helped by this uh, podcast, please um, send it along to them. Uh, and, and also if you can rate and review the podcast, that really helps us spread the word, um, about theology on the go. And as always, on behalf of James, myself, the whole team at the Alliance, uh, thank you for listening to Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. <laughs>